Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University. And here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to the eighth recording in our series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Sowen and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. So the aim of these recordings is very simple. We're going to spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Susie Garvis, who used to be an academic at Monash, but now, more excitingly, is professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. So good morning, Susie. Welcome. <laughs> very good. So lots to talk about. But just before we started, I set you a challenge to write your current research biography in 100 characters or less. And you describe yourself as working in the areas of childhood, youth studies and arts. I mean, can you talk me through through what that actually involves in reality. Definitely. So uh, at the University of Gothenburg, I work with uh, early childhood within the field of child and youth studies, and specifically within the field of quality and policy development. So we have quite a few European projects as well at the moment, working with uh, different organisations and multinationals, looking at um, how we can improve quality. And then also another area that I look at is uh, arts education, but also different arts-based research methods. I'm actually a mixed methods researcher, so uh, I do quantitative as well as qualitative. So um, I'm always trying to blend new ideas for this mixed methods approach as well. So there's a lot of kind of dualities going on there. You've got the kind of the quality and the policy. You've got the early child and youth. I mean, in some ways, they sound like completely different worlds. I mean, how are you bridging the gap, say, between early childhood and youth? They could be seen as two different worlds, but I actually see them as linked as well because the there is so much similarity. And as a child develops, for example, they move from one phase of development to another in sort of a synchronous level. So especially when we're looking at early childhood or youth studies, it's very common to separate, but new ways forward is taking more of a holistic approach. Yeah, yeah. And also, you mentioned arts and arts education and arts research seems to be having a bit of a moment at the moment and I wonder why has it suddenly become so popular? I think it's become popular at the moment because it's looking at different forms of reality especially for children and uh, children are able to express themselves in different ways so we have the the Reggio Emilia approach for example which is a hundred languages which includes representation of many different art forms so children can represent themselves in pictures or in music dance drama for example or even photographs and show us a different reality to what we think they might be experiencing and methods wise you say as well arts methods I mean what sort of things does that involve for those of us that don't do that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. So arts methods could be the use of either um, some type of artistic form, or it could also be a different approach to looking at, I guess, the ontology or the epistemology of the arts-based research. Yeah, yeah. So what's actually keeping you busy at the moment? What's what's keeping you busy at the moment research-wise? That's a good question. So at the moment, I am working on a large-scale quality project in uh, Sweden, where we're looking at quality in early childhood preschools with the Early Childhood Environmental Rating Scale. I've also got Erasmus uh, projects uh, working with Turkey and the Netherlands. So we're looking at when parents come to preschool and how we can actually enhance parental involvement. And then we also have projects um, where we've been working closely with Moscow State University and Moscow City University, where we've been really looking at ways to also bridge gaps in Vygotsky understanding. 
So what we've discovered is that the perhaps the Anglo-Saxon or the Western perspective of Vygotsky is is a lot different to perhaps the original interpretation of Vygotsky. That is fascinating because I'd always been told by a colleague of mine in London that the translation from Russian to English, some of the key words were translated slightly differently. And I'd always kind of taken that as a bit of an urban myth. So as a Vygotskyan coming to work very close to Russia, I mean, how has that kind of panned out? How have you kind of changed your understanding of Vygotsky? It's been interesting because I think a lot of the terms that we have taken through translation, um, we've taken as being very concrete. So even things such as the zone of proximal development, mm. we've taken that in the West to be very concrete, implemented it, uh, run with it throughout research. Whereas in the the Russian approach, it's still being investigated. Does mm. this actually exist? And, and do the Russians revere Vygotsky in the way that he is throughout the rest? Or do they, do, do they see the Western cover obsession with Vygotsky as a bit of a kind of... Uh an amusement? It's an interesting question, actually, because uh, Vygotsky is very popular and very um, very much informing still research in the Russian context. Oh. But uh, at the same time, they see the differences as well. So uh, Vygotsky in a Moscow concept is more uh, within a psychology perspective, whereas in the West, we've taken it more as a sort of aspects of that theory with cultural historical or sociocultural perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a fascinating kind of thing to have learned come halfway around the world. That's really interesting. And I mean, you talked about working with Swedish and Nordic and European funding agencies and research partners. I mean, I just wonder, are there any differences? What's the agenda in in the kind of European sphere and how are you kind of fitting your work around it? Yeah, there's a lot of differences when you work with different uh, funding agencies and funding bodies. I'm also uh, on the review panel for some of the Nordic countries for grant applications that come in and even amongst the Nordic countries there are differences for what grants look like and what the focus is. I think across Europe there's been a general trend within education research for more quantitative research Mm. lately but also the success rates are very it's very very hard to get a European grant as well with um, the actual Horizon 2020 funds and so even though um, you might write a great application you might just have to keep submitting that application until it's actually at the top of the pile. So you've had a lot of kind of getting up to speed very quickly with a completely different culture and a completely different way of doing things. Definitely and uh, also just learning the different requirements and ways of working so even things such as networking is different in a European or even in a Nordic context yeah 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 so I mean I'm sure what's in the future have you got anything exciting coming up on the horizon bids proposals just upcoming conferences yeah so we've got uh, quite a, a lot of things coming up so I've got a report coming up with uh, a group of German researchers in Munich where we're looking at uh, early childhood quality in Canada Germany and Sweden and really looking at the situation with uh, diverse families and also with immigrants that have come to um, Germany, Canada and uh, Sweden. And then also I have a number of book projects going on at the moment. So I sometimes get a bit overexcited with (laughs) books and things like that. Book proposals. Exactly, exactly. So I've got two textbooks coming out this year for um, the Australian market, Health and Wellbeing, that's in childhood, that's into its second edition, and then a child uh, development text as well with Oxford and then also some academic texts with uh, Rutledge coming out and so I find that um, since I have come to a Swedish context as well I've actually been able to um, have a little bit more time as well for writing which is wow nice. time to write that's amazing <laughs> I just I'm kind of scrolling back a little bit you mentioned this new project about quality and you mentioned before about your work on quality so quality I mean quality is obviously something that we're very interested in researching it's an incredibly difficult thing to pin down how are you working how are you conceptualizing this 
this idea of quality? When I talk about quality within early childhood, we look at two types, process quality and structural quality. So structural is more about the things that you can control in the physical environment, whether it be safety, group size, room size, teacher qualifications. And then process quality is the actual interaction or communication that's happening. Mm. Are there particular theoretical traditions that you're drawing in in terms of conceptualising quality or is it much more of a kind of just a framework that you're working with? It's more of a framework that we work with, but we also um, have quite a strong group of research collaborators across Europe, um, but also in America now with, with the echoes around the quality. Yeah, absolutely. But it's right. So we've talked a bit about writing. We've talked a bit about the research that you're doing. I'm really interested in just slowing down for a minute and just thinking about what thoughts are shaping your work at the moment, what you're reading, talking about ideas. I mean, what have you been actually kind of engaging with and reading at the moment? It's been interesting when you asked me the question about the reading, because um, I thought about my personal life where I'm going for my Swedish driving license at the moment. So I was literally reading the uh, the Swedish driving manual. <laughs> and what insights were you gaining from that in terms of education research? Exactly. So uh, it was interesting to see the different approach to teaching that was going on in in the um, Swedish curriculum for learning how to drive because it's uh, very culturally based and very, very different to my experience from getting a driver's licence in Australia. I'm also reading uh, some of the theorists, again, that I've gone back to. So Schwab, for example, really looking at his flights of reflection. And then one person that I also love to revisit is um, actually John Dewey. Yes. Just going back to some of the classics that we've had and just every time I read some of these uh, key philosophers, I come up with new ideas or new ways of thinking. About I've the heard theories. more about Dewey in the last few months I've been in Sweden than about the last 10 years. So why is Dewey having a particular kind of hold on, on thinking, maybe in Europe or maybe just in Sweden? Yeah, so I think Dewey has come back into vogue largely around some of the research traditions and methods that are being implemented in Sweden at the moment. So even ideas of how can Dewey be linked to the idea of variation theory here or even the learning study model that's been developed from the University of Gothenburg. So I think it's sort of a revisit of how we can actually work with these old ideas yeah. as well. Yeah, and Schwab's not something I've ever come across. What, what's what's the idea there? Yeah, so Schwab was uh, an educational theorist from the um, from the US in the 1970s, and he wrote a lot about curriculum development, but also around how theory and practice can actually be linked together. And uh, he talks about a concept of flight of reflection where the um, individual engages six different flights that sometimes might be inward gazing or outward gazing from a vertical perspective, from a horizontal perspective. And the idea is, is once a person or a teacher has undertaken these different flights of reflection, they then have a very broad or deep understanding of the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can see how that would really inform some really interesting research. So a couple of final questions. I mean, you've got, you're cooking up some big projects and, you know, working with these kind of multi-country and multinational. But I mean, if I could give you a million dollars just for a dream project, you know, no strings attached, what would oh, you really... That's, that's every researcher's dream. What would you love to do? <laughs> a million dollars. I would love to actually have more of a comparative study with countries that aren't so... Uh, so much represented in the literature. Mm. So when you go through journals and you're looking at creating a holistic world understanding, many times African 
uh, countries are missing, also South American countries. So it would be lovely to actually be able to have comparison studies with these countries to see what's going on. Yeah, and teach yourself to speak all the different languages as well. Exactly. Which was actually going to be my last question. I mean, you're following a growing trend for academics to work overseas. I mean, you're a travelling academic, which sounds lovely in theory. But I mean, in reality, how's it panning out? What are the pros and cons of working in another country, another hemisphere? Yeah, a travelling academic is, I think, a new identity uh, for for academics. And to me, the overseas experience is really important to actually learn about different cultures, learn about networking with different people. And I, uh, one thing I particularly love about being in Europe is just learning all the time about uh, how people live differently and different ideals and, and different ways of thinking as well. But at the same time, there are challenges. So when I first uh, came to Sweden, I didn't speak Swedish. Mm. I now speak um, Swedish, but I wouldn't say that I'm fluent in Swedish. You have to get to a level where you can teach in Swedish. Is that right? Yeah, so I teach in Swedish at the moment. Um, I'm not as good a teacher in Swedish as what I am in English. Do you find yourself saying to your students, if only I could teach you in English, I'd be... Doing this, yeah. Exactly, because I think in English it's easier to make uh, humor or jokes, mm, mm. whereas in the Swedish context you're learning, and even concepts such as humor is different. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I was going to say, I mean, you talked about what you've learned about other countries, but I mean, have you learned anything about yourself as an academic coming to work in Sweden? I've learned a lot about myself, and and one thing I think that's been nice is you actually get to hold a mirror up to yourself. Mm. And you learn that you can be uh, resilient, but also learning different ways of working with with other people and things like that. And that your foundation as well is based on a cultural understanding, but that foundation then changes when you move into a new context. So are you going to move on to another country or are you going to move back to Australia? Are you going to stay in Sweden for life? I'm wondering, have you got a taste for it now and you're going to be one of these kind of globetrotting academics? (laughs) In my travelling situation as well, I also have a a husband uh, to think about and a a dog and a soon-to-be child. So we have to think about everybody's needs as well. But at the moment, we're quite happy in Sweden. But I do like the idea of also experiencing different cultures uh, and countries along the way. And and being an academic is a perfect uh, employment to do that in. Well, thanks ever so much for your time and, and best of luck with it all. Thanks.